I'm David Cross, and you may know me from my election integrity work, but I also own U.S. Asset Management, a family-owned and operated investment advisory practice. I'm a certified portfolio manager, and my job is to help you make better decisions with your money. One of the things we try to avoid is investing in companies that push the woke agenda. If you're invested with one of the big firms out there, there's a pretty good chance that you're feeding the beast that hates your values. Our company is 100% conservative, and we'd love to have an opportunity to work with you. Check us out at us-am.com and look for our big, proud American Eagle logo. Welcome back to War Stories. We're lucky to have Colonel Rob Manus, uh, USAF retired, with us today. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. So uh, you've you've had quite the career, and I we were talking about this before the show. And let's let's start from the beginning. And and how did you you know how did you become a B one guy? And where did where did you start? I should should ask actually. <laughs> That's a great <laughs> question. I started when I was seventeen in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, and uh, enlisted. Uh, oh, wow. There in 1978. So uh, uh, in my enlisted time, I was fortunate enough to be allowed to get trained as an explosive ordnance disposal uh, technician. Uh, so I spent six and a half years doing that in various locations, including over in Europe uh, at a time in England when the Irish Republican Army was still pretty active, oh. and, uh, those kind of things. And uh, in, uh, in Germany, uh, 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 from my, my England time, we went to UI to Germany a lot, and uh, you know the Bader Meinhof gang, the Red Army yeah. faction. They were all st still pretty active with bombings and those kind of things during the time I was over over there. Uh, and uh, eventually, though, I finished college and had the opportunity to go to OTS and, and uh, uh, flying training as a navigator. Flew my first six and a half years as an aviator uh, in KC one thirty five A model tankers. That's how old I am. Uh, yeah. To give you an idea, they were mostly built before I was born, a lot of them. And I was born yeah. in 61, 1961. So uh, it, uh, uh, the uh, A-model engines, uh, you put demineralized water in them to augment them instead of having an afterburner. Uh, <laughs> you augmented the thrust for takeoff uh, uh, with demineralized water uh, that you can't use above 3,000 feet mean sea level because it freezes. <laughs> so... Well, that's interesting because I was going to say that was before the new engines came on, but was that for every takeoff or just for the, no, the, he the heavyweight ones? You know, the heaviest one I ever did uh, talking about war stories, man, was uh, at the beginning of desert shield. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, those of us that were in strategic air command and tactical air command at the time, remember that because uh, one of the first things that happened was uh, uh, the United States realized that, Hey, we have, we have, all these bases over there that we've spent, you know, millions and billions of dollars and we have no way to protect them. Uh, yeah. They were yeah. just sitting there and, you know, in mothballs waiting. Uh, so the Saudis uh, allowed us to start flying stuff over really fast. And uh, so fast that we ended up with F-15s in one location, KC-10 tankers in another location and B-52s at another location without any security. So wow. our first task in Desert Shield uh, came in early August, right after those assets were put in place. Uh, and uh, uh, we were tasked to go to uh, Cheyenne, Wyoming. There's a big missile base there. Uh, but there, more importantly, there was what's called a security forces group. Security forces in the Air Force, as you know, is part, is our infantry, yeah. uh, basic infantry. Well, we, we picked up, we, we took three A-model tankers up there. 
and uh, we picked up an entire security forces group and all their ammo, their all their supplies they would need, other, anything other than like the tents and stuff. Those were already uh, or deployed and everything. And when we took off out of there, uh, here's the war story part. Uh, it required a wet takeoff, but the field is a is slightly or either slightly below or right at three thousand feet MSL. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so we figured that out and we couldn't actually take off because the temperatures were too low using water. So we had to take the water off the airplane and take off, uh, uh, with only the amount of fuel we would need, uh, to get to above the runway, the fixed fuel, uh, you know what that is, yeah. uh, Ellsworth air force base, which isn't very far from, uh, from in Wyoming. So we had to, we had to hop into Ellsworth. So, uh, so we could get more fuel and, the elevation there was too high to use water. So we couldn't take off augmented and we had to adjust our fuel. And then we hopped over to, uh, to Maine. Uh, and finally we're at sea level so we could use water augmentation. And we took off and hopped in from into the UK and then into, uh, into Jeddah and Riyadh, Saudi Arabia to deliver the security forces to protect our assets that were wow. on the ground. No, no protection whatsoever. And nobody knew at that point, what's, you know, if Saddam was going to go past Kuwait or not. Because uh, he was still involved in the occupation. Uh, Reminds me of that uh, Darwin Award, where the guy, the Air Force guy, struck one of those what, Jado rockets to his car and <laughs> tried it out, and all they found was like a mile long tire burn, and then a oh, smoking hole in the mountain down the road. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Uh, it was interesting. Yeah, I mean, I never dreamed that the 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 most uh, uh, risky mission I would I would be on as our air refueling guy was taking all these cops over in the middle of a shooting war uh, that nobody was expecting uh, and having to adjust the, the machine so it could actually do it. Uh, but it, but I mean, those A-model engines are, are very reliable and great at high altitude. That's They're very fuel efficient at high altitude. That's what made them so attractive to the original Strategic Air Command folks. Interesting. So what'd you do after uh, tankers? Uh, went to the B-1. Mm -hmm. uh, strategic Air Command and Tactical Air Command got combined into Air Combat Command. I was supposed to uh, go into the backseat of an F-15E, but they canceled the program at, uh, when that happened, uh, mm -hmm. when the commands merged, and they offered me the backseat of a B-1 bomber. Uh, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, I got, uh, got to train in both seats, so I went from being a straight navigator uh, to being an electronic warfare officer, uh, which we have two seats, one's for defensive and one's for offensive in the bone. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, got trained in both, uh, became a flight examiner in both, eventually an instructor and, and a squadron commander, flight wow. commander, squadron commander, DO too. I was got to be a DO. I was very fortunate. I got to be the DO and squadron commander of the 9th Bomb Squadron all at the same time. Uh, mm -hmm. So I had 30 months. By the time I left command, I had 30 months in the squadron uh, in, in one of those two positions. Uh, and uh, that was probably the best assignment of my life. Well, I think it was the best assignment of my life. Was that when you were flying into Central Asia or you had mentioned you were over there a bit? We, uh, uh, before I became a commander, uh -huh. I was at the Pentagon after Air Command and Staff College and uh, I was there on 9-11. Uh, okay. I worked in the uh, NMCC and Nuke Ops, Joint Nuke Ops on the Joint Staff. And uh, yeah. we actually had to be tasked to become the planners and, and assistant planners to, in the response to 9-11 uh, okay. for a few months. And that spring, uh, I left and went back to uh, 
a flying squatter uh, down at Dias Air Force Base, Texas. Gotcha. Spent gotcha. months, uh, kind of getting re, you know, reacclimated and uh, recurrent, uh, and all those things, and, and then uh, eventually got stepped up to be a DO uh, in the ninth and uh, the following year, squadron commander there. And we went as as the DO and squadron commander uh, deployed both uh, to uh, uh, Operation Enduring Freedom. Flew out of Diego and IUD. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, operated the uh, three airplanes out of IUD for several months uh, for a short period of time during my last deployment. So it was great. The uh, great Americans flying those uh, machines. It's a tough mission because, especially out yeah. of Diego, you know, you're, you're looking at a minimum of 18 hour ride. Yeah. Not to mention that, that uh, uh, you know, the crew rest on the, on the front and back side and all that, the air yeah. refueling. It was, it was very interesting. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of fun, unless people were shooting at you. They did yeah. it. We saw people shoot at our. They were never very accurate, but uh, right. There were a few. So the B one, um, what is there? About a hundred of them left in in active service. I think now? it's only sixty two or three. We just lost really? one at Ellsworth uh, in Rapid City, South Dakota, two weeks ago. I, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In a in a uh, really thick weather landing cold cold weather and i think the the visibility was pretty low uh up, up there and uh, i flew for four years off of that runway and uh, the weather can really change fast on you all the way from the, from the time you get on a radar final to the time you get over the threshold the weather can change bad enough where you're not gonna uh yeah not gonna land uh, yeah those kind of things so Huh. It, uh, unfortunately we lost it looks like the, the aircraft is a loss based on the few pictures that i've been able to see uh, but all the crew members got out. It's got a great ejection system in it. Interesting. So um, the mission of the B-1 now, is, is it more standoff or is it actual dropping bombs or both? Or, or what is the the main function of it or whatever you can talk about? Well, the the last version of it that I flew, we had just got an air-to-air radar function. The radar on the aircraft is uh, uh, modeled after the F-16 synthetic mm-hmm. aperture radar. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's got an inherent uh, ability if it's programmed with software. It's a software deal uh, mm-hmm. to do air air. So we took that version over to in my last combat deployment. That was we got back from that in mid two thousand five. So we had the uh, first air to air radar function, uh, which we did use mm-hmm. uh, uh, for on occasion. Uh, we had uh, what was called blocky back then. So it, it gave us a full up JDAM capability. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we didn't have though is a is a targeting pod i mean we were totally reliant on getting coordinates from the jtacs the joint terminal or attack controllers on the ground uh and feeding them into the system uh so we're so standoffs probably not the complete word but but when you're at twenty-one thousand feet and you're doing you know 500 knots to speed up to uh to uh drop your jdams you do get a little bit of standoff there uh, because of what it does is the computer builds up uh, like an oval launch window, and once you, when you hit that window, uh, the weapons will automatically come off and go to their targets. But uh, but we didn't have that sniper pod. And when I left, that was the recommendation I made to the, uh, the CENTAF commander mm-hmm. uh, at the time was we need a sniper pod, uh, and that that's still the tech that was the best available at the time because you could you could make out a dog at forty miles basically. Yeah, uh, that. Uh, and about three years later, they did get that into the aircraft. So now uh, it, it's capable of uh, of targeting, doing its own targets. 
uh, doing positive ID hmm. and everything. And it's capable of carrying, uh, instead of uh, in, in the days that I was flying it, I think we could carry like 18, 2,000 pound JDMs. Well, now it can carry 84, 500 pound JDMs wow. at once. Your aircraft can. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a phenomenal leap in capability. Uh, you know, it, it carries all the guided weapons uh, that it needs to, like the, the wind corrected munitions dispenser, which is another big deal if you're ever in a big armor fight, mm -hmm. uh, those kind of things, as you know. And uh, uh, it, it's very sought after, at least before the war ended in Afghanistan. The platform mm -hmm. was the most requested by the, uh, uh, the air commanders and the ground commanders because it's so flexible. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and I think it's got SDB down to small diameter bomb and i'm not sure exact numbers but it, the payload it'll carry there but it'll be a lot do you know anything there. about the the new bombers coming online i mean from an unclassified standpoint or uh i can tell you that as the the first deputy director of uh plans programming and requirements at global strike command uh, i was involved in the the uh, requirements lay down uh, mm -hmm. and budgeting lay down for that platform uh and uh you can see by the pictures, it's uh, kind of like a two-seat B-2 bomber, but don't read anything into that because uh, uh, looks are deceiving, as you know. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, there were some things that we we demanded, go some capabilities that we demanded to go into that aircraft that will make it uh, very, very, very capable far, far, far into the future, you know, in, in the yeah. past. Uh, like with the B-52 and even the B-1 to a degree, they weren't designed to be modified or uh, updated, like, you know, get software updates. Uh, now, the B-1 is capable of it now, and the B-52 might be, but I'm not an expert in that. Uh, but uh, uh, but originally, they weren't designed that way, so it was very difficult to, to upgrade them, so to speak. Uh, but, uh, but we made sure that there were specific requirements in this upcoming aircraft, the B-21. Uh, I think is what we're calling it, uh, that uh, it would be capable of taking those upgrades, not just software and, and hardware, but also airframe. And those kind Inter of Interesting. Um, yeah, the, there's a reason it was called the B-52, because it was designed in 1952. <laughs> it's really amazing. So yeah, do, you think, do you think we're going to build enough of these B-21s to, you know, that that's always been the problem, right? Is you, That's you always been the problem. And no, I don't I don't think we will. I, I, unless some external factor uh, drives it, like uh, we go into World War III, mm -hmm. uh, which is a real possibility right now. Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, unless an external factor like that drives it, we'll end up with a with a political solution uh, to what should be a military solution, just like we did with the B one or the B two. The B one uh, was supposed to be a certain number, ended up at a hundred without any yeah. funding for the parts uh, trail. By the way, and then mm -hmm. the B two. Uh, was supposed to be, I, I think the original numbers on the B2 were like three or 400 and it, what, 20? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, down to 20 uh, for that. Uh, and now I don't know what the buy is supposed to be for the B21 off the top of my head, but uh, you can, I can guarantee you without that external factor happening, uh, it'll be a political solution to what should really be a military solution and we'll have less than we need. Which has always been a concern of mine because then you have very high value targets, right? I mean, take yeah. out a few of those on the runway. And speaking of aircraft security, that's always been another worry of mine. All you got to do is have a guy with a few mortars and you're, you got real problems if you can get close enough to these bases, right? 
Absolutely. And when, yeah. when you look at the southern border and what's been going on, I've been tracking on, uh, especially since Biden uh, came into play. I mean, I was in 2013 when I ran for office the first time, my number one platform item was secure the border because mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I was worried about national security and people coming through that border that uh, not uh, that were, yes, some narco trafficking, narco terrorists and those kind of things, but other people coming through that border like Chinese military age males. Uh, Islamic terrorists, those kind of things. And since Biden has taken over and, and opened the border completely up, I mean, we have some astronomical numbers of yeah. military age bills from China, uh, uh, not just Venezuela, uh, but also from Yemen, and mm -hmm. Iran, and Turkey, and be the um, Turkey may be a NATO a NATO member, but there are a lot of Islamic terrorists in that country for sure. Uh, so uh, so we have a major internal national security issue here. And to get back to your border uh, mm -hmm. deal, uh, the Chinese have been buying property around military bases for a long time. I remember uh, the B-2 base at Whiteman Air Force Base uh, decades ago. Yeah. We confirmed that the Chinese government had bought a farm uh, within 20 miles of that runway. So, you know, and now the, the problem has multiplied. Uh, dramatically because of these military age males that, uh, you know, even if we know where some of them are, Todd, you know, the gotaway function is like three for every one that you see you're, you're, you're getting three or four gotaways that, uh, that we don't know about. Uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm up in the Northeast and I'm worried about a thousand of them getting off the Metro North line here in one of these local communities and just start ransacking homes. You know, I mean, they're going to, What's to stop them from doing that? There's hundreds of thousands of them in New York City. So the Second um, Amendment, but uh, the New York City, uh, New York State uh, restricts the Second Amendment. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you ran for Senate twice, right? Yeah, yeah. 2014 was the first year, and 2016 was that in Mississippi, Louisiana, Louisiana. When I retired from okay. the Air Force, I got a job with uh, Entergy Corporation, uh -huh. Fortune Five utility yep. as their director of safety and training and uh, mm -hmm. uh about two years after i left the air force i lost my mind and decided that uh americans needed to step up and, and start running for office because the people that we were putting in office no matter what party they were were saying things on the campaign trail and then doing the opposite or or worse exactly, exactly. In office. so do you have plans to run again <laughs> you're not going to answer. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I am. I am active in politics. Uh, I'm on the county executive committee here yep. for the Republican Party in Harrison County, Mississippi, uh, and I uh, have my own political action committee. It's called Gator Pack, hmm. uh, and it's a federal pack. And I started that after I ran the first time because I realized that military people and people that had not been in politics before uh, uh, got ripped off. You know, yeah. we raised three point six million dollars, and not not every penny of that money went into the messaging. Because if it if it would have in that first race, we were really close to to uh, uh, getting Mary Landrieu in a runoff, and I was polling at fifty three percent head to head hmm. against her. Uh, unfortunately, the the Democrat turned Republican Bill Cassidy uh, uh, had the support of the of the party uh, in that. So uh, it was like me running against both parties. Yeah, I mean, even though we raised three and a half million dollars and had a great, a great effort, it just wasn't enough. I mean, they both had fourteen or fifteen million dollars, and 
uh, and those kind of things. Uh, yeah. Although we still got 214,000 votes or so. so I'm on the Miami-Dade Republican Executive Committee and they're same issues. You know, you have you have America first candidates and then and those that aren't. So it's, it's a problem yeah. across the country. Yeah, I'm also fortunate enough that I got asked to set up a Mississippi chapter of Veterans for Trump. Mm. It's got our website live uh, yesterday. Uh, cool. You uh, Google Mississippi, you know, Veterans for Trump Mississippi or Veterans for America First Mississippi, you'll find our website and see my lovely face in a video on there. That's and uh, we're organizing the veterans in the state to get out the boat and make phone calls and that kind of thing. Uh, so we're, we're active in politics and. If the opportunity comes to run again and my wife can, will give me permission. Uh, that's that's I a big hurdle. <laughs> yeah, I just did a, uh, a an interview for a, a documentary that they're doing, Veterans for Trump, down in Palm Beach. So, oh, good. Know yeah. that organization well. So, yeah. tell us about your podcast. You've you're pretty influential. You got a pretty big audience. I've heard your name thrown about a good bit. Well, the Rob Manis Show live. It's live now. It used to be pre-recorded uh, uh, and then broadcast as a live broadcast on the streaming services. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, uh, uh, it is a streaming TV show uh, that gets turned into the audio podcast on, unlike Apple podcasts and those kind of things. Uh, we love doing it. Uh, it's a one hour live show with a live audience through spaces uh, and everything Monday through Thursday, uh, 4 PM Eastern uh, for one hour. And, uh, you know, we you you had you have some of my guests on your show every once in a while. I saw Colonel John Mills, U.S. Army. He, he's yeah. a regular. On my my Monday show is called More War Monday. Uh, <laughs> I try to get John on there at least twice a quarter uh, to uh, give, especially give me an update on China and all that. He's yep. he's really good at that, but he's he, he's well versed in everything. So we have a couple more regulars. I want to get you on it. Sure. Uh, and uh, we go out. My social media followers. I've got about. Nah, 350,000 or so across all the platforms that I'm on. Uh, my main platforms are uh, Twitter, uh, where I've got close to 100,000 getter. Uh, I think we're up to five grand on that. And then uh, Facebook, I have 205,000 followers on my fan page uh, on Facebook. So I can go live. I broadcast the show live to all of those uh, uh, and to Rumble uh, to, uh, when we do that. And to my website at robmanus.com, you can catch the show live there. Uh, if you want to, and you can also always catch it. Uh, uh, we take the recordings and then republish them on all the websites that we can, including the webpage. Uh, so you can find that archive there. And uh, we just want to bring the truth to the American people. That's why I started doing this after I uh, uh, stopped running for office uh, uh, to take a break from that for a little while and just focus on something meaningful. Uh, and the show has evolved uh, uh, in the being that platform that uh, we try to, we just try to get the facts out, the truth out, uh, and in and in an American perspective out yeah. to uh, folks that want to watch it. And we have audience members from around the world, but most of our our, our audience is uh, uh, U.S. Uh, at least residents. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I couldn't yeah. tell you how many of them are actual citizens, but uh, uh, but yeah. So we we love doing it uh, and. Uh, uh, we'll take on any subject uh, and uh, try to have at least one guest on per show. I'd like like to do a deep dive interview, mm -hmm. a long interview. Uh, to and I think that's what makes the show unique. We have a live audience, and we we dive deep into a, a subject uh, matter with an expert uh, 
uh, each day we have one on there and the audience gets to ask a question or two, usually four questions. If we do it, if I do the timing right on the show, uh, mm-hmm. from the audience, uh, in addition to my questions that I ask the guests, and, uh, we, uh, like I said, really enjoy it. And, uh, it, it get very good feedback. We had a 700, Fantastic. my show, I'm doing the show once a week right now because I got picked up. I got dropped by one network and picked up by another. So we're in between that, but I'm producing a once a week show in my show this week. Uh, we had uh, almost 800 people just in the live audience. That's fantastic. That's, that's, that's a yeah. lot. Yeah. yeah it's lot. not huge, but, uh, but uh, people like it because uh, they're getting something out of it. Which- no, that that's, that's a really uh, influential audience. You know, we, unfortunately we were deplatformed in 2020 and lost about, 300,000 followers across multiple platforms. So we're rebuilding, but um, it's, it's uh, hard, not easy to build up what you've got. So congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, Facebook uh, was our best uh, uh, traffic, you know, and engagement. Uh, but uh, in October of 2020, uh, our website uh, got caught up in the suppression of conservative websites yep. on the 1st of October on yep. Facebook. And it's, uh, although we still use it uh, and, and, uh, uh, and everything, uh, even our live broadcast gets suppressed on there. So sure. most of our audience is, is on X, X Twitter, Getter, whatever you yeah. call that. Yeah. Twitter. <laughs> I've been a little disappointed in Getter since they changed management. I'm not sure what's going on there, but X is yeah. definitely, uh, definitely the place to be right now. So um, yeah, and it's not, I mean, every once in a while we'll catch it, catch those folks running it, shadow banning us, but, uh, yeah. but we're able to grow the audience still. That's the only platform, really. I mean, Getter is, is grows a little bit, but it, yeah. like you, uh, I've been a little bit disappointed. Well, the, the engagement has gone to zero, basically, on Getter. Um, and I think they're sh- shadow banning us, too, because, uh, you know, I got we got 50-something thousand in one channel, and we'll get two people to see something. I mean, it's... Um, well, cool. Colonel, thank you for uh, coming on. Is there anything else you want our audience to know? Well, you know... Uh, catch us especially on more warm Mondays, Todd. You know, it's uh, uh, there's a lot going on. Uh, there is, and, uh, and we didn't really go into my enlisted time, but uh, a whole lot. But I was in EOD, and uh, if you go look at my my Twitter account today, you'll see there's a couple of us that are that are talking about this pipe bomb mm-hmm. uh, issue, and we've been talking about it all along. Uh, but the new news that's come out about oh, it was really an undercover officer that discovered these pipe bombs outside of the RNC and DNC headquarters, et cetera. Uh, and, and they were like FBI training materials or something like that, right? That's exactly. what it looks like to us. I mean, yeah. I, I was trained in 1978, 79. I graduated in early January 80 from EOD school. And uh, as soon as I saw the pictures of those devices, that's exactly what came into my head was I've seen those before. And yeah. it was in our improvised explosive device training class that when we went through undergraduate training in EOD, uh, uh, the kitchen timer, the wind-up kitchen timer is, uh, is a, in those days especially, was a standard of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like uh, the Weather Underground, uh, mm-hmm. all, the, all these terrorist groups, even the IRA and the, the uh, Red Army faction and those kind of folks. It was a standard for that uh, on a lot of different devices. Uh, yeah, so it, it looked pretty familiar. <laughs> yeah. And you start adding it up, you know, and the, uh, and the things, a 12 hour timer, we know 
based on the video we have that it was the, the devices were placed uh, on January 5th uh, or very early on January 6th uh, at night. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, a 12 hour timer doesn't do you, uh, that. So there's some, there's some hokiness going on there. I suspect that it's part of some type of operation of course. Uh, that they don't want to let out. Uh, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist on this whole thing, but you know what, uh, I've learned by investigating the January 6th issues, uh, that we're aware of and, and just, just following the facts that you can gather. Uh, there are enough facts now that tells me, uh, especially when you combine it with the the Fed napping uh, yep. case of Governor Whitmer in Michigan in October, uh, that uh, there's enough facts that, that I'm pretty comfortable saying that this was a pretty big operation across multiple agencies uh, uh, that includes uh, operational agents, confidential human sources, informants, uh, paid informants, and intelligence services yes uh, and and i believe that based on uh i've done a lot of a couple of interviews with uh, uh steve baker who's now at the blaze uh, the pragmatic constitutionalist is what you'll find him as on twitter uh i believe uh that there was a special operations element to this uh hmm. based on what he's told me interesting which is really kind of interesting uh and concerning if there yeah was. you'd want to know what types of forces were used right i mean was it yeah, well you could go down the list i mean there's a lot of special yeah. operations is a big word right i mean it, it really depends yeah. on what units and mm. you know the police forces have special operations but uh yeah you know, um yeah. anyway maybe we can talk about that sometime sure uh and as you know the pakistanis now attacking the iranians yeah i saw that this morning wow what a uh, I did, a, uh, did an interview that's going to air over the weekend with Frank Gaffney at uh, uh, Securing America on Rav, and uh, we were talking about that off camera. And uh, he goes, "You know, you would think the Chinese would want the uh, uh, the Pakis to to be going after the Indians, and that's typical of what they try to stir up yeah. uh, that area." I go, "Yeah, you're exactly right." Uh, but as we always say, when the war box is opened, you never know what's going to come out of well, it. Well, it's it's funny, you know, you have the alleged uh you know rapprochement between the sunnis and the shias those old hatreds are going to come back you know between the saudis and the iranians no matter how much money's thrown around yeah um, exactly right i just released a book on the mek which is the iranian resistance i spent a lot of time with them mm -hmm. uh, so fascinating situation in iran people really need to understand it but um yeah I, uh, occasionally uh i have some friends on twitter that i follow and that follow me i have them on every once in a while it's been a while so i need to get one of them on there their uh, mech guys. Oh, cool. Well, cool. Great. From the past. So they usually, we have our, our paths cross in many ways, right? Yes. <laughs> <they do. laughs> well, this is a 30 minute show, so I'm going to cut this off, but um, let's, let's do this again soon and go into more details on stuff. Absolutely. Be looking for a guest request from us. Anytime. Take care. All right, sir. Bye. Thanks. Todd.